CD5 It was an hour later, Miss Flitworth sorted through her rag bag. What next? she said. What have we had so far? Let's see. Hessian calico linen. How about satin? Here's a piece. Bildor took the rag and wiped it gently along the blade. Miss Flitworth reached the bottom of the bag and pulled out a swatch of white cloth. Yes? Silk, she said softly. Finest white silk, the real stuff, never worn. She sat back and stared at it. After a while, he took it tactfully from her fingers. Thank you. Well now, she said, waking up. That's it, isn't it? When he turned the blade, it made a noise like... Whoom. The fires of the forge were barely alive now, but the blade glowed with razor light. Sharpened on silk, said Miss Flitworth. Who'd believe it? And still blunt. Bildor looked around the dark forge and then darted into a corner. What have you found? Cobweb. There was a long, thin whine, like the torturing of ants. Any good? Still too blunt. She watched Bildor stride out of the forge and scuttled after him. He went and stood in the middle of the yard, holding the scythe blade edge on to the faint dawn breeze. It hummed. Oh, how sharp can a blade get, for goodness sake? It can get sharper than this. Down in his henhouse, Cyril the Cockerel awoke and stared blearily at the treacherous letters chalked on the board. He took a deep breath. Flew a cockle dod. Bildor glanced at the rimwood horizon and then, speculatively, at the little hill behind the house. He jerked forward, legs clicking over the ground. The new daylight sloshed onto the world. Discworld light is old, slow and heavy. It roared across the landscape like a cavalry charge. The occasional valley slowed it for a moment, and here and there a mountain range banked it up until it poured over the top and down the far slope. It moved across a sea, surged up the beach, and accelerated over the plains driven by the lash of the sun. On the fabled hidden continent of X, somewhere near the rim, there is a lost colony of wizards who wear corks around their pointy hats and live on nothing but prawns. There the light is still wild and fresh as it rolls in from space, and they surf on the boiling interface between night and day. If one of them had been carried thousands of miles inland on the dawn, he might have seen, as the light thundered over the high plains, a stick figure toiling up a low hill in the path of the morning. It reached the top a moment before the light arrived, took a breath, then spun around in a crouch, grinning. It held a long blade upright between extended arms. Light struck, split, slid. Not that the wizard would have paid much attention, because he'd be too busy worrying about the 5,000-mile walk back home. Miss Flitworth panted up as the new day streamed past. Bildor was absolutely still, only the blade moving between his fingers as he angled it against the light. Finally, he seemed satisfied. He turned around and swished it experimentally through the air. Miss Flitworth stuck her hands on her hips. Oh, come on, she said. No one can sharpen any thing on daylight. She paused. He waved the blade again. Good grief! Down in the yard, Cyril stretched his bald neck for another go. Bildor grinned and swung the blade towards the sound. Sudan noodle fod. 
Then he lowered the blade. That's sharp. His grin faded, or at least faded as much as it was able to. Miss Flitworth turned, following the line of his gaze, until it intersected a faint haze over the cornfields. It looked like a pale grey robe, empty but still somehow maintaining the shape of its wearer, as if a garment on a washing line was catching the breeze. It wavered for a moment and then vanished. I saw it, said Miss Flitworth. That wasn't it. That was them. Them who? They're like, Bildor waved a hand vaguely. Servants, watchers, auditors, inspectors. Miss Flitworth's eyes narrowed. Inspectors? You mean like the revenue? She said. I suppose so. Miss Flitworth's face lit up. Why didn't you say? I'm sorry? My father always made me promise never to help the revenue. Even just thinking about the revenue, he said, made him want to go and have a lie down. He said that there was death and taxes, and taxes was worse, because at least death didn't happen to you every year. We had to go out of the room when he really got started about the revenue. Nasty creatures, always poking around, asking what you've got hidden under the woodpile and behind the secret panels in the cellar and other stuff which is no concern whatsoever of anyone. She sniffed. Bildor was impressed. Miss Flitworth could actually give the word revenue, which had two vowels and one diphthong, all the peremptoriness of the word scum. You should have said that they were after you right from the start, said Miss Flitworth. The revenue aren't popular in these parts, you know. In my father's day, any revenuer came round here, prying around by himself, we used to tie weights to the feet and heave them into the pond. But the pond is only a few inches deep, Miss Flitworth. Yeah, but it was fun watching him find out. You should have said everyone thought you were to do with taxis. No, not taxis. Well, well, I didn't know there was a revenue up there, too. Yes, in a way. She sidled closer. When will he come? Tonight. I cannot be exact. Two people are living on the same timer. It makes things uncertain. I didn't know people could give people some of their life. It happens all the time. And you're sure about tonight? Yes. And that blade will work, will it? I don't know. It's a million to one chance. Oh. She seemed to be considering something. So you've got the rest of the day free, then? Yes. Then you can start getting the harvest in. What? It'll keep you busy, keep your mind off things. Besides, I'm paying you sixpence a week, and sixpence is sixpence. Mrs. Cake's house was also in Elm Street. Windle knocked on the door. After a while, a muffled voice called out, Is there anybody there? Knock once for yes, Schleppel volunteered. Windle levered open the letterbox. Um, excuse me, um, uh, Mrs. Cake? The door opened. Mrs. Cake wasn't what Windle had expected. She was big, but not in the sense of being fat. She was just built to a scale slightly larger than normal the sort of person who goes through life crouching slightly and looking apologetic in case they inadvertently loom. And she had magnificent hair. It crowned her head and flowed out behind her like a cloak. She also had slightly pointed ears and teeth, which, while white and quite beautiful, caught the light in a disturbing way. Windle was amazed at the speed at which his heightened zombie senses reached a conclusion. He looked down. Lupine was sitting bolt upright, too excited even to wag his tail. I don't think you could be Mrs. Cake, said Windle. 
Mm, you want mother, said the tall girl. Mother, there's a gentleman. A distant muttering became a closer muttering, and then Mrs Cake appeared around the side of her daughter like a small moon emerging from planetary shadow. What do you want? said Mrs Cake. Windle took a step backwards. Unlike her daughter, Mrs Cake was quite short and almost perfectly circular. And still unlike her daughter, whose whole stance was dedicated to making herself look small, she loomed tremendously. This was largely because of her hat, which he later learned she wore at all times with the dedication of a wizard. It was huge and black and had things on it, like bird wings and wax cherries and hat pins. Carmen Miranda could have worn that hat to the funeral of a continent. Mrs Cake travelled underneath it as the basket travels under the balloon. People often found themselves talking to her hat. Um, Mrs Cake, said Windle, fascinated. I'm down here, said a reproachful voice. Windle lowered his gaze. That's who I am, said Mrs Cake. Am I addressing Mrs Cake, said Windle. Yes, I know, said Mrs Cake. My name's Windle Poons. I know that too. I'm a wizard, you see. All right, but see you wipes your feet. May I come in? Windle Poons paused. He replayed the last few lines of conversation in the clicking control room of his brain, and then he smiled. That's right, said Mrs Cake. Are you by any chance a natural clairvoyant? About ten seconds, usually, Mr. Pones. Windle hesitated. You got to ask the question, said Mrs. Cake quickly. I get some migraine if people goes and viciously not asks questions after I've already foreseen them and answered them. How far into the future can you see, Mrs. Cake? She nodded. Right, then, she said, apparently mollified, and led the way through the hall into a tiny sitting room. And the bogey can come in... Only he's got to leave his door outside and go into the cellar. I don't hold with bogies wandering around the ass. Gosh, it's ages since I've been in a proper cellar, said Schleppel. It's got spiders in it, said Mrs Cake. Wow. And you'd like a cup of tea, said Mrs Cake, to Windle. Someone else might have said, I expect you'd like a cup of tea, or do you want a cup of tea? But this was a statement. Yes, please, said Windle. I'd love a cup of tea. You shouldn't, said Mrs Cake. That stuff rots your teeth. Windle worked this one out. Two sugars, please, he said. It's all right. This is a nice place you have here, Mrs Cake, said Windle, his mind racing. Mrs Cake's habit of answering questions while they were still forming in your mind taxed the most active brain. He's been dead for ten years, she said. Um said Windle, but the question was already there in his larynx. I trust Mr Cake is in good health? It's OK. I speaks to him occasional, said Mrs Cake. I'm sorry to hear that, said Windle. All right, if it makes you feel any better. Um, Mrs Cake, I'm finding it a little confusing. Could you, could you switch off your precognition? She nodded. Sorry, I gets into the habit of leaving it on, she said. What with there only being me and Ludmilla and one man bucket? He's a ghost, she added. I knew you was going to ask that. Yes, I had heard that mediums have native spirit guides, said Windle. Him? He's not a guide, he's a sort of 
Odd job, ghost, said Mrs Cake. I don't hold with all that stuff with cards and trumpets and oo-jar boards, mind you. And I think ectoplasm's disgusting. I won't have it in the house, I won't. You can't get it out of the carpets, you know, not even with vinegar. My word, said Windlepoons. Or wailing, I don't hold with it. Or messing around with the supernatural. It's unnatural, the supernatural. I won't have it. Um, said Windle cautiously. There are those who might think that being a medium is just a bit, well, you know, supernatural. What? What? Nothing supernatural about dead people. Load of nonsense. Everyone dies sooner or later. I do hope so, Mrs Cake. So what is it you'd be wanting, Mr Poons? I'm not precogniting, so you'll have to tell me. I want to know what's happening, Mrs Cake. There was a muted thump from under their feet and the faint happy sound of Schleppel. Oh, wow! Rats, too! I went up and tried to tell you, wizards, said Mrs Cake primly, and no one listened. I knew they weren't going to, but I had to try, otherwise I wouldn't have known. Um, who did you speak to? The big one with the red dress and a moustache like he's trying to swallow a cat. Ah, the Arch-Chancellor, said Windle positively. And there was a huge fat one, walks like a duck. He does, doesn't he? That was the Dean, said Windle. They call me their good woman, said Mrs Cake. They told me to be about my business. I don't see why I should go around helping wizards who call me a good woman when I was only trying to help. I'm afraid uh, wizards don't often listen, said Windle. I never listened for one hundred and thirty years. Why not? In case I heard what rubbish I was saying, I expect. What's happening, Mrs Cake? You can tell me. I may be a wizard, but I'm... I'm a dead one. Well, Schleppel told me it was all due to life force. It's building up, see. What does that mean? There's more of it than there should be. You get, she waved her hands vaguely, when things are like in uh, scales, only not the same on both sides. Um, imbalance. Mrs Cake, who looked as though she was reading a distant script, nodded. One of them things, yeah, see, sometimes it just happens a little bit and you get ghosts, because the life is not in the body anymore, but it hasn't gone, and, and you get less of it in the winter, because it sort of drains away, and it comes back in the spring and some things concentrate it. Modo, the university gardener, hummed a little tune as he wheeled the strange trolley into his private little area between the library and the high-energy magic building, with a load of weeds bound for composthood the only building on the campus less than a thousand years old. The senior wizards have never bothered much about what the younger, skinnier and more respectable wizards get up to in there, treating their endless requests for funding for the thaumic particle accelerators and radiation shielding as one treats pleas for more pocket money, and listening with amusement to their breathless accounts of the search for the elementary particles of magic itself. This may one day turn out to be a major error on the part of the senior wizards, especially if they do let the younger wizards build whatever that blasted thing is they keep wanting to build in the squash court. The senior wizards know that the proper purpose of magic is to form a social pyramid with the wizards on top of it, eating big dinners, but in fact the HEM building has helped provide one of the rarest foods in the universe, antipasta. 
Ordinary pasta is prepared some hours before being eaten. Antipasta is created some hours after the meal, whereupon it then exists backwards in time, and if properly prepared, should arrive on the taste buds at exactly the same moment, thus creating a true taste explosion. It costs $5,000 a forkful, or a little more if you include the cost of cleaning the tomato sauce off the walls afterwards. There seemed to be a lot of excitement around at the moment. It was certainly interesting working with all these wizards. Teamwork, that's what it was. They looked after the cosmic balance, the universal harmonies and the dimensional equilibriums, and he saw to it that the aphids stayed off the roses. There was a metallic tinkle. He peered over the top of the heap of weeds. Another one? A gleaming metal wire basket on little wheels sat on the path. Maybe the wizards had bought it for him? The first one was quite useful, although it was a little bit hard to steer. The little wheels seemed to want to go in different directions. There was probably a knack. Well, this one would be handy for carrying seed trays in. He pushed the second trolley aside and heard behind him a sound which, if it had to be written down, and if he could write, he would probably have written down as glop. He turned around, saw the biggest of the compost heaps pulsating in the dark, and said, Look what I have brought you for your tea and then he saw that it was moving. Some places, too, said Mrs. Cake. But why should it build up, said Windle. It's like a thunderstorm, see. You know how you get that prickly feeling before a storm. That's what's happening now. Yes, yes, but why, Mrs. Cake? Well, one man bucket says nothing's dying. What? Daft, isn't it? He says lots of lives are ending but not going away. They're just staying here. What, like like ghosts? Not just ghosts. Just, it's like uh, puddles. When you get a lot of puddles, it's like the sea. Anyway, you only get ghosts from things like people. You don't get ghosts of cabbages. Windle Poons sat back in his chair. He had a vision of a vast pool of life, a lake being fed by a million short-lived tributaries, as living things came to the end of their span, and life force was leaking out of the pressure built up, leaking out wherever it could. Do you think I could have a word with one? He began and then stopped. He got up and lurched over to Mrs. Cake's mantelpiece. How long have you had this, Mrs. Cake? He demanded, picking up a familiar glassy object. That, ah, uh, bought it yesterday. Pretty, ain't it? Windle shook the globe. It was almost identical to the ones under his floorboards. Snowflakes whirled up and settled on an exquisite model of Unseen University. It reminded him strongly of something. Well, the building obviously reminded him of the university, but the shape of the whole thing, there was a hint of it. It made him think of... breakfast? Why is it happening? he said, half to himself. These damn things are turning up everywhere. The wizards ran down the corridor. How can you kill ghosts? How should I know? The question doesn't usually arise. You you exercise them, I think. What, jumping up and down, running on the spot, that kind of thing? The dean had been ready for this. It's spelled with an O, Arch-Chancellor. I don't think one is expected to subject them to uh, physical exertion. Should think not, man. We don't want a lot of uh, healthy ghosts buzzing around. There was a blood-curdling scream. It echoed around the dark pillars and arches and was suddenly cut off. The Arch-Chancellor stopped abruptly. The wizards cannoned into him. 
Sounded like a blood-curdling scream, he said. Follow me. He ran around the corner. There was a metallic crash and a lot of swearing. Something small and striped red and yellow, with tiny dripping fangs and three pairs of wings, flew around the corner and shot over the dean's head, making a noise like a miniature buzzsaw. "'Anyone know what that was?' said the bursar faintly. The thing orbited the wizards, and then disappeared into the darkness of the roof. "'And I wish he wouldn't swear so.' "'Come on,' said the dean. "'We'd better see what's happened to him.' "'Must we?' said the senior wrangler. They peered round the corner. The Arch-Chancellor was sitting up, rubbing his ankle. "'What idiot left this here?' he said. "'Left what?' said the Dean. "'This blasted, wire-baskety, wheelie thing,' said the Arch-Chancellor. Beside him a tiny purple spider-like creature materialised out of the air and scuttled towards a crevice. The wizards didn't notice it. "'What wire-baskety, wheelie thing?' said the wizards in unison. Ridcully looked around him. "'I... I... I could have sworn,' he began. There was another scream. Ridcully scrambled to his feet. "'Come on, you fellows!' he said, limping heroically onwards. "'Why does everyone run towards a blood-curdling scream?' mumbled the senior wrangler. "'It's contrary to all sense!' They trotted out through the cloisters and into the quadrangle. A rounded, dark shape was squatting in the middle of the ancient lawn. Steam was coming out of it in little noisome wisps. "'What is it? It can't be a compost heap in the middle of the lawn, can it?' "'Modo will be very upset.' The dean peered closer. "'Er, uh, especially because, er, uh, I do believe that's his feet poking out from under it.' The heap swivelled towards the wizards and made a glop-glop noise, and then it moved. "'Right then,' said Ridcully, rubbing his hands together hopefully. "'Which of you fellows has got a spell about them at the moment?' The wizards patted their pockets in an embarrassed fashion. "'Then I shall attract its attention while the bursar and the dean try to pull Modo out,' said Ridcully. "'Oh, good,' said the dean faintly. "'How can you attract a compost heap's attention?' said the senior wrangler. "'I shouldn't think it's even got one.' Ridcully removed his hat and stepped gingerly forward. "'Load of rubbish!' he roared. The senior wrangler groaned and put his hands over his eyes. Ridcully flapped his hat in front of the heap. "'Biodegradable garbage!' Mm, "'Poor green trash!' said the lecturer in recent runes, helpfully. "'That's the ticket!' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'Try to infuriate the bugger!' Behind him, a slightly different variety of mad, waspy creature popped out of the air and buzzed away. The heap lunged at the hat. "'Midden!' said Ridcully. "'Oh, I say,' said the lecturer in recent runes, shocked. The dean and the bursar crept forward, grabbed a gardener's foot each, and pulled. Modo slid out of the heap. "'It's eaten through his clothes,' said the dean. "'But is he all right?' "'He's still breathing,' said the bursar. "'And if he's lucky, he's lost his sense of smell,' said the dean. "'The heap snapped at Ridcully's hat. "'There was a glop. "'The point of the hat had vanished. "'Hey, there was still almost half a bottle in there,' Ridcully roared. "'The senior wrangler grabbed his arm. "'Come on, Arch-Chancellor!' "'The heap swivelled and lunged towards the bursar. "'The wizards backed away. "'It can't be intelligent, can it?' said the bursar. "'All it's doing is moving around slowly and eating things,' said the dean. 
Put a pointy hat on it and it'd be a faculty member, said the Arch-Chancellor. The heap came after them. I wouldn't call that moving slowly, said the Dean. They looked expectantly at the Arch-Chancellor. Uh, run! Portly, though most of the faculty were, they hit a fair turn of speed up the cloisters, fought one another through the door, slammed it behind them and leaned on it. Very soon afterwards there was a damp, heavy thud on the far side. Well, we're out of that, said the bursar. The dean looked down. I think it's coming through the door, Arch-Chancellor, he said in a tiny voice. Don't be daft, man. We're all leaning on it. I didn't mean through. I meant through. The Arch-Chancellor sniffed. What's burning? You are boots, Arch-Chancellor, said the dean. Ridcully looked down. A greenish-yellow puddle was spreading under the door. The wood was charring, the flagstones were hissing, and the leather soles of his boots were definitely in trouble. He could feel himself getting lower. He fumbled with the laces and then took a standing jump onto a dry flagstone. Bursar! Yes, Arch-Chancellor? Give me your boots. What? Damn it, man! I, I command you to give me your blasted boots! This time, a long creature with four pairs of wings, two at each end and three eyes, popped into existence over Ridcully's head and dropped onto his hat. But I am your Arch-Chancellor. Yes, but... I think the hinges are going, said the lecturer in recent runes. Ridcully looked around desperately. We'll, we'll regroup in the Great Hall, he said. We'll, we'll strategically withdraw to previously prepared positions. Who prepared them? said the dean. We'll prepare them when we get there, said the Arch-Chancellor through gritted teeth. Bursa, your boots, now! They reached the double doors of the Great Hall, just as the door behind them half collapsed, half dissolved. The Great Hall's doors were much sturdier. Bolts and bars were dragged into place. Clear the tables and, and, and pile them up in front of the door, snapped Ridcully. But it eats through wood, said the dean. There was a moan from the small body of Modo, which had been propped against a chair. He opened his eyes. Quick, said Ridcully, how can we kill a compost heap? Um, I don't think you can, Mr Ridcully, sir, said the gardener. How about fire? I could probably manage a small fireball, said the dean. It wouldn't work, it's too soggy, said Ridcully. It's right outside, it's eating away at the door, it's eating away at the door sang the lecturer in recent runes. The wizards backed further away down the length of the hall. I hope it doesn't eat too much wood, said the dazed Modo, radiating genuine concern. They're a devil, excuse my Clatchian, if you get too much carbon in them. It's far too heating. You know, this is exactly the right time for a lecture on the dynamics of compost-making, Modo, said the dean. Dwarfs do not know the meaning of the word irony. Well... All right. <clears throat> the correct balance of materials, correctly layered, according to... There goes the door, said the lecturer in recent runes, lumbering towards the rest of them. The mound of furniture started to move forward. The Arch-Chancellor stared desperately around the hall at a loss. Then his eyes were drawn to a familiar heavy bottle on one of the sideboards. Carbon, he said. That's like charcoal, isn't it? How should I know? I'm not an alchemist, sniffed the dean. The compost heap emerged from the debris. Steam poured off it. The Arch-Chancellor looked longingly at the bottle of wow-wow sauce. He uncorked it. He took a deep sniff. The cooks here just 
can't make it properly, you know, he said. It'll be weeks before I can get any more from home. He tossed the bottle towards the advancing heap. It vanished into the seething mass. Stinging nettles are always useful, said Modo behind him. They add iron and comfrey. Well, you can never get enough comfrey for the minerals, you know. Myself, I've always reckoned that a small quantity of wild yarrow. The wizards peered over the top of an overturned table. The heap had stopped moving. Is it just me, or is it getting bigger, said the senior wrangler. And looking happier, said the dean. It smells awful, said the bursar. Oh well, and that was nearly a full bottle of sauce too, said the arch-chancellor sadly. I'd hardly opened it. Nature's a wonderful thing when you come to think about it, said the senior wrangler. You don't all have to glare at me like that, you know I was only passing a remark. There are times when, Ridcully began, and then the compost heap exploded. It wasn't a bang or a boom. It was the dampest, most corpulent eruption in the history of terminal flatulence. Dark red flame, fringed with black, roared up to the ceiling. Pieces of heap rocketed across the hall and slapped wetly into the walls. The wizards peered out from their barricade, which was now thick with tea leaves. A cabbage stalk dropped softly onto the dean's head. He looked at a small bubbling patch on the flagstones. His face split slowly into a grin. Wow, he said. The other wizards unfolded themselves. Adrenaline backwash worked its seductive spell. They grinned too and started playfully punching one another on the shoulder. Eat hot sauce, roared the Arch-Chancellor. Up against the hedge, fermented rubbish. Can we kick ass or can we kick ass? burbled the dean happily. You mean can't the second time, not can, and I'm not sure that a compost heap can be said to have, and the senior wrangler began, but the tide of excitement was flowing against him. That's one heap that won't mess with wizards again, said the dean, who was getting carried away. We're keen and mean and... There's three more of them out there, Modo says, said the bursar. They fell silent. We could go and pick up our staffs, couldn't we? said the dean. The arch-chancellor prodded a piece of exploded heap with the toe of his boot. Dead things coming alive, he murmured. I don't like that. What's next? Walking statues? The wizards looked up at the statues of dead arch-chancellors that lined the Great Hall, and indeed most of the corridors of the university. The university had been in existence for thousands of years, and the average arch-chancellor remained in office for about eleven months, so there were plenty of statues. You know, I, I really wish you hadn't said that, said the lecturer in recent runes. It was just a thought, said Ridcully. Come on, let's have a look at the rest of those heaps. Yeah, said the dean, now in the grip of a wild, unwizardly machismo. We're mean, yeah. Are we mean? The arch-chancellor raised his eyebrows and then turned to the rest of the wizards. Are we mean? he said. Um, I I'm feeling reasonably mean, said the lecturer in recent runes. I'm definitely very mean, I think, said the bursar. It's having no boots that does it, he added. I'll be mean if everyone else is, said the senior wrangler. The arch-chancellor turned back to the dean. Yes, he said, it appears that we're all mean. Yo, said the dean. Yo what, said Ridcully. It's not a yo-what, 
It's just a yo, said the senior wrangler behind him. It's a general street greeting and affirmative with convivial military in-group and masculine bonding ritual overtones. What? What? Like, like jolly good, said Ridcully. I suppose so, said the senior wrangler, reluctantly. Ridcully was pleased. Ankh-Morpork had never offered very good prospects for hunting. He'd never thought it was possible to have so much fun in his own university. Right, he said. Let's get those heaps. Yo. 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 Yo, yo. Ridcully sighed. Bursa? Yes, Arch-Chancellor? Just try to understand, all right? Clouds piled up over the mountains. Bill Dorr strode up and down the first field using one of the ordinary farm scythes. The sharpest one had been temporarily stored at the back of the barn in case it was blunted by air convection. Some of Miss Flitworth's tenants followed behind him, binding the sheaves and stacking them. Miss Flitworth had never employed more than one man full-time, Bill Dorr learned. She brought in other help as she needed it to save pennies. "'Never seen a man cut corn with a scythe before,' said one of them. "'It's a sickle job.' They stopped for lunch and ate it under the hedge. Bildor had never paid a great deal of attention to the names and faces of people beyond that necessary for business. Corn stretched over the hillside. It was made up of individual stalks, and to the eye of one stalk, another stalk might be quite an impressive stalk, with a dozen amusing and distinctive little mannerisms that set it apart from all other stalks. But to the reaper man, all stalks start off as just stalks. Now he was beginning to recognise the little differences. There was William Spigot and Gabby Wheels and Duke Bottomley, all old men, as far as Bill Dorr could judge, with skins like leather. There were young men and women in the village, but at a certain age they seemed to flip straight over to being old without passing through any intermediate stage. And then they stayed old for a long time. Miss Flitworth had said that before they could start a graveyard in these parts, they'd have to hit someone over the head with a shovel. William Spigot was the one that sang when he worked, breaking into that long nasal whine which meant that folk song was about to be perpetrated. Gabby Wheels never said anything. This, Spigot had said, was why he had been called Gabby. Bill Dorr had failed to understand the logic of this, although it seemed transparent to the others. And Duke Bottomley had been named by parents with upwardly mobile, if rather simplistic, ideas about class structure. His brothers were Squire, Earl and King. Now they sat in a row under the hedge, putting off the moment when they'd need to start work again. A glugging noise came from the end of the row. It's not been a bad old summer, then, said Spigot, and good harvest, weather for change. Ah, many a slip twixt dress and drawers, said Duke. Last night I saw a spider spinning its web backwards. That's a sure sign there's going to be a dreadful storm. Don't see how spiders know things like that. Gabby Wheels passed a big earthenware jug to Bill Dorr, something sloshed. What is this? Apple juice, said Spigot. The others laughed. Ah, said Bildor. Strong distilled spirits given humorously to the unsuspecting newcomer, thus to afford simple amusement when he becomes inadvertently inebriated. Quor, said Spigot. Bildor took a long swig. And I saw swallows flying low said Duke, and partridges are heading for the woods, and there's a lot of big snails about, and... 
I don't reckon any of them buggers knows the first thing about meteorology, says Spigot. I reckon you goes round telling them. Hey, lads, big storm coming, Mr. Spider, so get on and do something folklorish. Bill Dor took another drink. What is the name of the blacksmith in the village? Spigot nodded. That's Ned Simnel, down by the green. Of course, he's real busy about now, what with the harvest and all. I have some work for him. Bill Dor got up and strode away towards the gate. Bill? He stopped. Yes? You can leave the brandy behind, then. The village forge was dark and stifling in the heat, but Bill Dor had very good eyesight. Something moved among a complicated heap of metal. It turned out to be the lower half of a man. His upper body was somewhere in the machinery from which came the occasional grunt. A hand shot out as Bill Dor approached. Right. Give me a three-eighths gripply. Bill looked around. A variety of tools were strewn around the forge. Come on, come on, said a voice from somewhere in the machine. Bill Dor selected a piece of shaped metal at random and placed it in the hand. It was drawn inside. There was a metallic noise and a grunt. I said a gripply. This isn't a gr There was the scringing noise of a piece of metal giving way. My thumb! My thumb! You made me! There was a clang. Oh, that was my head! Now look what you made me do! And the ratchet spring snapped off in the trunnion armature again. Do you realise? No, I am sorry. There was a pause. Is that you, young Egbert? No, it is me, old Bill Dor. There was a series of thumps and twanging noises as the top half of the human extricated itself from the machinery and turned out to belong to a young man with black curly hair, a black face, black shirt and black apron. He wiped a cloth across his face, leaving a pink smear and blinked the sweat out of his eyes. Who are you? Good old Bill Dor, working for Miss Flitworth. Oh yes, the man in the fire, hero of the hour, I heard. Put it there. He extended a black hand. Bill Dahl looked at it blankly. I am sorry. I still do not know what a three-eighths gripply is. I mean your hand, Mr. Dahl. Bill Dahl hesitated and then put his hand in the young man's palm. The oil-rimmed eyes glazed for a moment as the brain overruled the sense of touch, and then the smith smiled. The name's Simnel. What do you think, eh? It's a good name. No, I mean the machine. Pretty ingenious, eh? Bill Dor regarded it with polite incomprehension. It looked at first sight like a portable windmill that had been attacked by an enormous insect, and at second sight like a touring torture chamber for an inquisition that wanted to get out and about a bit and enjoy the fresh air. Mysterious jointed arms stuck out at various angles. There were belts and long springs. The whole thing was mounted on spiked metal wheels. Of course... You're not seeing it at its best when it's standing still, said Simnel. It needs a horse to pull it. At the moment, anyway. I've got one or two rather radical ideas in that direction, he added dreamily. It is a device of some sort? Simnel looked mildly affronted. I prefer the term machine, he said. It will revolutionise farming methods and drag them kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat. 
My folk have had this forge for 300 years, but Ned Simnel doesn't intend to spend the rest of his life nailing bits of bent metal onto horses, I can tell you. Bill looked at him blankly. Then he bent down and glanced under the machine. A dozen sickles were bolted to a big horizontal wheel. Ingenious linkages took power from the wheels via a selection of pulleys to a whirligig arrangement of metal arms. He began to experience a horrible feeling about the thing in front of him, but he asked anyway. Well, the art of it all is this camshaft, said Simnel, gratified at the interest. The power comes up via the pulley here, and the cams move the swaging arms, that's these, and the combing gate, which is operated by the reciprocating mechanism, comes down just as the gripping shutter drops in this slot here, and of course at the same time the two brass balls go round and round, and the fletching sheets carry off the straw while the grain drops with the aid of gravity down the riffling screw and into the hopper. Simple. And the three-eighths gripply? Ah, good job you reminded me. Simnel fished around among the debris on the floor, picked up a small, knurled object, and screwed it onto a protruding piece of the mechanism. Very important job. It stops the elliptical cam gradually sliding up the beam shaft and catching on the flange rebate, with disastrous results, as you can no doubt imagine. Simnel stood back and wiped his hands on a cloth, making them slightly more oily. I'm calling it the Combination Harvester, he said. Bill Dorr felt very old. In fact, he was very old, but he'd never felt it as much as this. Somewhere in the shadow of his soul, he felt he knew, without a blacksmith explaining, what it was that the combination harvester was supposed to do. Oh. We're going to give it a trial run this afternoon up in old Peedbury's big field. It looks very promising, I must say. What you're looking at now, Mr Dorr, is the future. Yes. Bill Dorr ran his hand over the framework. And the harvest itself? Hmm? What about it? What will it think of it? Will it know? Simnel wrinkled his nose. No? No? He won't know anything. Corn's corn. And sixpence is sixpence. Exactly, Simnel hesitated. What was it you were wanting? The tall figure ran a disconsolate finger over the oily mechanism. Mr. Dorr? Pardon? Oh, yes. I had something for you to do. He strode out of the forge and returned almost immediately with something wrapped in silk. He unwrapped it carefully. He'd made a new handle for the blade, not a straight one such as they used in the mountains, but the heavy double-curved handle of the plains. You want it beaten out? A new grass nail... Metalwork replacing? Bildor shook his head. I want it killed. Killed? Yes, totally. Every bit destroyed, so that it is absolutely dead. Nice scythe, said Simnel. Seems a shame. You've kept a good edge on it. Don't touch it. Simnel sucked his finger. Funny he said. I could have sworn I didn't touch it. My hand was inches away. Well, it's sharp anyway. He swished it through the air. Yes, pretty sharp, I'd say. He paused, stuck his little finger in his ear and swivelled it around a bit. You sure you know what you want, he said. 
Bill Dore solemnly repeated his request. Simnel shrugged. Well, I suppose I can melt it down and burn the handle, he said. Yes. Well, OK. It's your scythe, and you're basically right, of course. This is old technology now. Redundant. I fear you may be right. Simnel jerked a grimy thumb towards the combination harvester. Bildor knew it was made only out of metal and canvas and therefore couldn't possibly lurk, but it was lurking. Moreover, it was doing so with a chilling, metallic smugness. You could get Miss Flitworth to buy you one of these, Mr. Dor. It'd be just the job for a one-man farm like that. I can see you now, up there, up in the breeze, with the belts clacking away and the sparge arms oscillating. No. Go on. She could afford it. They say she's got boxes full of treasure from the old days. No. Er... Simnel hesitated. The last no contained a threat more certain than the creak of thin ice on a deep river. It said that going any further could be the most foolhardy thing Simnel would ever do. I'm sure you know your own mind best, he mumbled. Yes. Then it'll just be... Ah, uh, call it a farthing for the scythe. Simnel gabbled. Sorry about that, but it'll use a lot of coals, you see, and those dwarfs keep winding up the prices. Here, it must be done by tonight. Simnel didn't argue. Arguing would mean that Bildor remained in the forge, and he was getting quite anxious that this should not be so. Fine, fine. You understand? Right, right. Farewell, said Bildor solemnly, and left. Simnel shut the doors after him and leaned against them. Phew! Nice man, of course, everyone was talking about him. It was just that after a couple of minutes in his presence you got a pins and needles sensation that someone was walking over your grave, and it hadn't even been dug yet. He wandered across the oily floor, filled the tea kettle and wedged it on a corner of the forge. He picked up a spanner to do some final adjustments to the combination harvester, and spotted the scythe leaning against the wall. He tiptoed towards it and realised that tiptoeing was an amazingly stupid thing to do. It wasn't alive, it couldn't hear. It just looked sharp. He raised the spanner and felt guilty about it. But Mr. Dor had said... Well, Mr. Dor had said something very odd, using the wrong sort of words to use in talking about a mere implement. But he could hardly object to this. Simnel brought the spanner down hard. There was no resistance. He would have sworn again that the spanner sheared in two as though it was made of bread several inches from the edge of the blade. He wondered if something could be so sharp that it began to possess not just a sharp edge, but the very essence of sharpness itself, a field of absolute sharpness that actually extended beyond the last atoms of metal. Bloody whit, hell whit, fire whit. And then he remembered that this was sloppy and superstitious thinking for a man who knew how to bevel a three-eighths griply. You knew where you were with the reciprocating linkage. It either worked or it didn't. It certainly didn't present you with mysteries. He looked proudly at the combination harvester. Of course, you needed a horse to pull it. That spoiled things a bit. Horses belonged to yesterday. Tomorrow belonged to the combination harvester and its descendants, which would make the world a cleaner and better place. It was just a matter of taking the horse out of the equation. He tried clockwork, and that wasn't powerful enough. Maybe if he'd tried winding a... Behind him, the kettle boiled over and put the fire out. Simnel fought his way through the steam. That was the bloody trouble. Every time, whenever someone was trying to do a bit of sensible thinking, 
there was always some pointless distraction. Mrs. Cake drew the curtains. Who uh, exactly is one man bucket, said Windle. She lit a couple of candles and sat down. He belonged to one of them heathen Hawandaland tribes, she said shortly. Very strange name, one man bucket, said Windle. It's not his full name, said Mrs. Cake darkly. Now we've got the old hands. She looked at him speculatively. We need someone else. I could call Schleppel, said Windle. I ain't having no bogey under my table trying to look up me drawers, said Mrs. Cake. Ludmilla, she shouted. After a moment or two, the bead curtain leading into the kitchen was swept aside and the young woman who had originally opened the door to Windle came in. Yes, mother. Sit down, girl. We need another one for the seancing. Yes, mother. The girl smiled at Windle. This is Ludmilla, said Mrs. Cake shortly. Charmed, I'm sure, said Windle. Ludmilla gave him the bright crystalline smile perfected by people who had long ago learned not to let their feelings show. We have already met, said Windle. It must be at least a day since the full moon, he thought. All the signs are nearly gone. Nearly? Well, well, well. She's my shame, said Mrs. Cake. Mother, you do go on, said Ludmilla without rancour. Join hands, said Mrs. Cake. They sat in the semi-darkness, then Windle felt Mrs. Cake's hand being pulled away. Oh, I forgot about the glass, she said. I thought, Mrs. Cake, that you didn't hold with Ouija boards and that sort of... Windle began. There was a glugging noise from the sideboard. Mrs. Cake put a glass on the tablecloth and sat down again. I don't, she said. Silence descended again. Windle cleared his throat nervously. Eventually, Mrs. Cake said, All right, one man bucket. I knows you're there. The glass moved. The amber liquid inside sloshed gently. A bodiless voice quavered, Greetings, pale face, from the happy hunting ground. You stop that, said Mrs. Cake. Everyone knows you got run over by a cart in Treacle Street because you was drunk, one man bucket. It's not my fault. Not my fault, is it my fault my great-grandad moved here? By rice, I should have been mauled to death by a mountain lion or a giant mammoth or something. I've been denied my death right. Mr Poons here wants to ask you a question, one man, Bucket, said Mrs Cake. She is happy here and waiting for you to join her, said one man, Bucket. Uh, who is? said Windle. This seemed to fox one man bucket. It was a line that generally satisfied without further explanation. Who would you like? he asked cautiously. Can I have that drink now? Not yet, one man bucket, said Mrs. Cake. Well, I need it. It's bloody crowded in here. What? said Windle quickly. With ghosts, you mean? There's hundreds of them, said the voice of one man bucket. Windle was disappointed. Only hundreds, he said. That doesn't sound a lot. Not many people become ghosts, said Mrs. Cake. To be a ghost, you've got to have, like, serious unfinished business, or a terrible revenge to take, or a cosmic purpose in which you are just a pawn. Or a cruel thirst, said one man bucket. Will you hark at him, 
said Mrs. Cake. "'I wanted to stay in the spirit world, or even wine and beer.' <laughs> "'So what happens to the life force if things stop living?' said Windle. "'Is that what's causing all this trouble?' "'You tell the man,' said Mrs. Cake, when one man bucket seemed reluctant to answer. "'What trouble you talking about?' "'Things unscrewing, uh, clothes running around by themselves, "'everyone feeling more alive, that sort of thing.' "'That? That's nothing. "'See, the life force leaks back where it can. "'You don't need to worry about that.' "'Windle put his hand over the glass. "'But there is something I should be worrying about, isn't there?' "'he said flatly. "'It's to do with the little glass souvenirs.' "'Don't like to say!' "'Do tell him!' It was Ludmilla's voice, deep but somehow attractive. Lupine was watching her intently. Windle smiled. That was one of the advantages about being dead. You spotted things the living ignored. One man bucket sounded shrill and petulant. "'What's he going to do if I tell him, then? I could get into heap big trouble for that sort of thing!' "'Well, you can tell me if I guess right,' said Windle. "'Yes, maybe.' "'You don't have to say anything,' said Mrs Cake. "'Just knock twice for yes and once for no, like in the old days.' "'Oh, all right.' "'Go on, Mr Poons,' said Ludmilla. "'She had the kind of voice Windle wanted to stroke.' "'He cleared his throat.' "'I think,' he began, "'that is, I think there's some sort of eggs. "'I thought, why breakfast? "'And then I thought, eggs. "'Knock. "'Oh, well, perhaps it was a rather silly idea.' "'Sorry, was it once for yes or twice for yes?' "'Twice!' snapped the medium. "'Knock, knock. "'Ah!' breathed Windle. And they hatch into something with wheels on. Twice for yes, was it? Right. Knock, knock. I thought so. I thought so. I found one under my floor that tried to hatch where there wasn't enough room, crowed Windle. Then he frowned. But hatch into what? Mustrum Ridcully trotted into his study and took his wizard's staff from its rack over the fireplace. He licked his finger and gingerly touched the top of the staff. There was a small octarine spark and a smell of greasy tin. He headed back for the door. Then he turned around slowly because his brain had just had time to analyse the study's cluttered contents and spot the oddity. "'What the hell's that doing there?' he said. He prodded it with the tip of his staff. It gave a jingling noise and rolled a little away. It looked vaguely, but not very much, like the sort of thing the maids trundled around, loaded with mops and fresh linen and whatever it was maids pushed around. Ridcully made a mental note to take it up with the housekeeper. Then he forgot about it. "'Damn, wire, wheelie things are getting everywhere,' he muttered. Upon the word damn, something like a large blue bottle with cat-sized dentures flopped out of the air, fluttered madly as it took stock of its surroundings, and then flew after the unheeding arch-chancellor. The words of wizards have power, and swear words have power. And with life force practically crystallising out of the air, it had to find outlets wherever it could. 
cities, said one man bucket. I think they're city eggs. The senior wizards gathered again in the great hall. Even the senior wrangler was feeling a certain excitement. It was considered bad form to use magic against fellow wizards, and using it against civilians was unsporting. It did you good to have a really righteous zap occasionally. The Arch-Chancellor looked them over. Dean, why have you got stripes all over your face? he inquired. Camouflage, Arch-Chancellor. Camouflage, eh? Yo, Arch-Chancellor. Oh well, so long as you feel happy in yourself, that's what matters. They crept out towards the patch of ground that had been Modo's little territory. At least most of them crept. The Dean advanced in a series of spinning leaps, occasionally flattening himself against the wall and saying, Hut, 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 under his breath. He was absolutely crestfallen when the other heaps turned out to be still where Modo had built them. The gardener, who had tagged along behind and had twice nearly been flattened by the Dean, fussed around them for a while. They're just lying low, said the Dean. I say we blow up the God's dam. They're not even warm yet, said Modo. That one must have been the oldest. You mean we haven't got anything to fight, said the Arch-Chancellor. The ground shook underfoot, and then there was a faint jangling noise from the direction of the cloisters. Ridcully frowned. Someone's pushing those damn wire baskety things around again, he said. There was one in my study tonight. Hmm, said the senior wrangler. There was one in my bedroom. I opened the wardrobe and there it was. In your wardrobe? What did you put it in there for? said Ridcully. I didn't. I told you it was probably the students. It's their kind of humour. One of them put a hairbrush in my bed once. I fell over one earlier, said the Arch-Chancellor, and then when I looked round for it, someone had, had taken it away. The jingling noise got closer. Right, Mr. So-called clever dick young feller, my lad, said Ridcully, tapping his staff once or twice on his palm in a meaningful way. The wizards backed up against the wall. The phantom trolley pusher was almost on them. Ridcully snarled and leapt out of hiding. Aha! My fine young bloody hellfire! Don't be pulling my leg, said Mrs Cake. Cities ain't alive. I know people says they are, but they don't mean really. Windle Poons turned one of the snowballs around in his hand. It must be laying thousands of them, he said, but they wouldn't all survive, of course. Otherwise, we'd be up to here in cities, yes? You telling us that those little balls hatch out into huge places, said Ludmilla. Not straight away. There's the mobile stage first. Something with wheels on, said Windle. That's right. I can see you know already. I think I knew, said Windlepoons, but I didn't understand. And what happens after the mobile stage? Don't know. Windle stood up. Then it's time to find out, he said. He glanced at Ludmilla and Lupine. Ah, yes, and why not? If you can help somebody as you pass this way, Windle thought... Then your living, or whatever, shall not be in vain. He let himself fall into a stoop, and let a little crackle enter his voice. 
but I'm rather unsteady on my legs these days, he quavered. It would be really a great favour if someone could help me along. Could you see me as far as the university, young lady? Ludmilla doesn't go out much these days because her health, Mrs Cake began briskly. Is absolutely fine, said Ludmilla. Mother, you know it's been a whole day since full moon. Ludmilla! Well, it has. It's not safe for a young woman to walk the streets these days, said Mrs Cake. But Mr Poons's wonderful dog would frighten away the most dangerous criminal, said Ludmilla. On cue, Lupine barked helpfully and begged. Mrs Cake regarded him critically. He's certainly a very obedient animal, she said reluctantly. That's settled then, said Ludmilla. I'll fetch my shawl. Lupine rolled over. Windle nudged him with a foot. Be good, he said. There was a meaningful cough from one man bucket. All right, all right, said Mrs Cake. She took a bundle of matches from the dresser, lit one absent-mindedly with her fingernail, and dropped it into the whiskey glass. It burned with a blue flame, and somewhere in the spirit world the spectre of a stiff double lasted just long enough. As Windlepoons left the house, he thought he could hear a ghostly voice raised in song. The trolley stopped. It swivelled from side to side, as if observing the wizards. Then it did a fast three-point turn and trundled off at high speed. Get it! bellowed the Arch-Chancellor. He aimed his staff and got off a fireball which turned a small area of cobblestones into something yellow and bubbly. The speeding trolley rocked wildly but kept going, with one wheel rattling and squeaking. End of CD 5